This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Hello. Hey, Sean. We have new internet. Hopefully we can avoid issues for once. We have new internet here, too. Oh, well then. I guess it's time to put it to the test. Right. I'm just pulling some things up. Hang on. Okay, okay. I'll just be here drinking my coffee. Okay. Tom's leaving all this in. I'm sure. Gotta have something that comes before the credits. <laughs> before the credits? <laughs> just, just roll the credits. We're done. That's good. We talked coffee. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Uh, so on our last episode, we talked Rails is not your architecture, and um, a lot of people gave us some good feedback on that. A couple of things that came up a couple of times was uh, this gem called Trailblazer, and um, we'll put that in the show notes. So um, if you're listening to this now, you can probably scroll around on your pod catcher thing and find the show notes and click on the link and read along with us. But um, Trailblazer is a thin layer on top of Rails, it says. It gently enforces a capsula- encapsulation, an intuitive code structure, and gives you an object-oriented architecture. So it does a lot of the things that we were complaining about on the last show, like don't organize your code by pattern, organize your code by use, um, removing bulky controllers, completely replaces helpers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people heard what we were complaining about and said, this sounds exactly like something you guys would like. Um, have you taken a look at it? Uh, yeah, I haven't used it, so I, I, I can't speak too much on it. But after reading the README, my knee-jerk reaction is just there's there's a lot of DSL there, and I don't think we need more DSL. It also fails. My my, my tweetable uh, little snippet from the last episode was leave the business object logic to objects you can call dot new on. I, I noticed I don't see dot new anywhere in any of the examples. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. You know, my my reaction to it was. Well, this does make an attempt to address a lot of the concerns, but it was also like an immediate kind of uncomfortableness with how much, how many of those concerns we're trying to address at one time, right? It's like a big, if we were to try this on a client project, for instance, like we couldn't just go out and try this on a client project. It's not like a small library can be like, oh, it'll let us, uh, you know, put everything under app modules or something like that. It does a lot. Yeah. And I imagine you can use however much of that you want, but it does a lot, so it's a big investment. So I haven't had a chance to really play with any of it, but I could see, you know, if I had a personal project I was running or maybe an internal ThoughtBot project that it would be worth at least giving a look at it. But yeah, it is a little DSL-y in places, but I kind of like what it's done to, like, break out actions from controllers and things like that. So Yeah, no, I, li- I definitely like what it's going for. Yeah. Anyway, so if, uh, yeah, I guess if you have experience using it and want to get back to us, let us know. Um, but it looks interesting. I'm going to give it a try, I think, next time I'm on a, pro- a Rails project, which I don't know what that's going to be. <laughs> right. So I've been working a lot lately with Clearance. We'll put that in the show notes as well. It's our username and password authentication library that, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, Dan Croak had been maintaining it, and he, I had been involved with it, and he said, would you like to take over maintaining it? So I've been maintaining it for a while. And I had all these like great plans about what I thought Clearance 2.0 could be. Like, there were... I thought that there were problems in like extensibility that I thought could be addressed and I was all excited about that. And then the realities of being a library maintainer settled in <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, uh this isn't this isn't going to be as easy. Like I can't this is an existing library. I can't just like break this stuff." 
<laughs> and tell people like, oh, I'm sorry about that. And like for a while, I thought like, I'm just going to break it because it's going to be better and there's going to be some breaking changes and, you know, you'll just have to go through that pain and it'll be way better on the other side. And then over time, kind of slowly came to the realization that what I was proposing wasn't much different than just rewriting the entire library. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't be the greatest way to go. So I've been focusing a lot lately on after hearing, I was really inspired by the Ember 2.0 roadmap that they laid out, which was basically, we're going to, we're going to introduce new functionality in the one X series. We're going to deprecate old functionality. We're going to give you a way to find all these deprecations because that's difficult in JavaScript projects often. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to give you a good way to find all these. And if you just follow along with us on one, one X, when it comes time for 2.0, we're just going to remove those deprecations. And, you know, as long as you've, you've fixed all the deprecations in your code, you'll be good. Yeah. So that's kind of the process I've been following. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it's a good process. I mean, that's what we try to do on Rails for the most part. There are sometimes exceptions made on major version bumps. But, yeah, I mean, always giving a upgrade path and a deprecation warning for a long enough period of time that you, that you can expect your users to go fix their code. I do think that depending on the nature of the breaking change you're making, a deprecation may or may not actually make that migration less painful. It would just make it less sudden. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make it less painful. You well, it does make it less painful, right? The old the old way works. It's only painful if you are looking at like test output or log output, which you should be doing. Well, but you still have to make whatever changes they were going to have to make to their code. They just have more time to do it, which that, I'm, that is less painful. But I'm, I'm, I'm more thinking in terms of the amount of code that has to get rewritten, that still has to be a concern. Right. That's true. And like, I don't want to make any breaking changes just because I like the way something looks. I want to have a good reason behind it, right? But at the same time, I feel like doing it in small steps along a 1x release train is a lot easier than... Even even if the work is the amount of work is identical, doing it in small steps along one X is a lot easier than coming out of the blue one day with two point that has fifteen deprecations that or fifteen complete removals. They're not even deprecations, right? I completely agree with you. Or you could do like the RSpec style where you release like one dot nine nine, which has all the deprecations in it. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it exists slowly to get you on to two L. Um which actually wasn't a bad idea either from where RSpec was coming from. So that's two no. different ways to look at it. You know, the other thing I was struggling with is Clearance is a as an old library and has support for basically Rails three and higher. So if I were to test against every version of Rails and every version of Ruby now that Ruby two two is out, that this thing could possibly support the test matrix would be probably like fifteen twenty tests test runs. Yeah, I never know what to do. Like how like I can't. I know I I know I shouldn't remove support for a Ruby version until. I make a major version bump, right? So, like, when I go to 2.0, I'm going to be pretty excited because I'm just going to say, like, either Ruby 2.1 or 2.2 or higher. Even though it's not strictly necessary, like, the code as it exists today obviously runs on 1.9 just fine. Right. But I feel like I have to take that opportunity or, you know, a few months from now, I'll have this really cool 2.2 feature I want to use. And I'll be like, oh, well, I got to wait until 3.0. <laughs> And then I'll be sitting in the same spot where you're like, oh, well, I have no real good reason right now. This code runs fine on one nine. Why do I need to? Uh... And then like the same thing happens with with Rails versions. Like right now, there's nothing exciting I have planned that I that couldn't work with Rails 3.0. So do I cut off support for it just so I don't have to bother keep keep test to keep testing it? Or like... I think that you should, if nothing else, the versions of Rails that are still supported should kind of be the the guideline with which our support matrix is a little bit weird because we support the previous minor version and the previous major version 
and I could totally see not supporting 3.2. But like 4.0 has been end of life. We we just released the last release of 4.0 that will ever be released. That includes major security vulnerabilities. Like 4.0 is dead. So at this point, there's not really any reason for Gems to continue supporting it. Everybody should be moving to 4.1 or later as quickly as possible. Right. And then that also gives a good guideline for Ruby support, I think. Whatever the versions of Rails you support also support. Right. Do you think it would be a good like compromise to publicly say I like clearance supports Rails four plus, but leave the version constraint allowing like if if I know it to be runnable under three whatever, just leave the version constraint, or do I just have to leave those people behind that are stuck on three X? Ooh, I mean, so that's that's the thing, right? I could totally see just saying, hey, this is what we run our tests on, and it might work on earlier versions, but I really don't know, and I'm not testing it, and I won't accept pull requests that have Rails 3 issues. I, mean, I, think, I think Rails might be, might be a bad example. Like, I feel like with the Rails dependency, I have to, make a, I have to draw a line somewhere. Because right, you is, have to put it in your gem spec. Right, and there is code that says, you know, if it's Rails 3, do this, and I would love to get rid of that code, right? Right. And then it would leave me with just the code that says, is it Rails 4? two then do this um you know those branches the, the number of branches i can get rid of are great it would be yes you know if i can get it down to a reasonable number of branches that would be great clearance isn't too bad i think something like should have matchers has a ton of like because it, it, it pokes into the internals of rails quite a bit so i think if you talk to elliot about should have matchers and dropping support for rails he'd be more excited about dropping support for older versions of rails than i am i have I, yeah i've definitely talked to him about that a couple of times <laughs> um so maybe Rails, I do have to draw that line in the sand, but I don't have a great reason for saying Ruby 2.2 plus, only that I want to be able to use like keyword arguments or something like that. But the code doesn't currently use keyword arguments. Am I going to go back and make that change? No, I'm not, because that would be a breaking change. Um, Actually, it wouldn't. Mm, switching from an options hash to keyword arguments is not a breaking change. That is correct, but switching from something that takes multiple arguments that would look oh, better yeah. as keyword arguments is a breaking yeah. change, and that's what I was thinking of. Because... Um, yeah. Anything that takes two or three, like if you take two, even some methods that take just one argument, like a Boolean, right? I feel like those greatly benefit from keyword arguments because you can tell me what this true or false that I'm passing. I can tell you what that means. Yeah. I think anytime you're likely to pass a literal, it should always be named. And if you're going to pass a, if you're likely to be passing a variable instead, then making it named tends to make it read redundant at the call site. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. So I guess, I guess what I'm asking is like, a, do I have to run all of my test suite on every supported Ruby? Like, do you think I should do that? Like, right now, yes. clearance does not run on 2.2 because I just haven't gotten around to adding. It does run on 2.2. The test suite does not run on 2.2 because I haven't got around to adding it to the Travis configuration, right? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, that's, now it's four versions of Ruby I'm testing against because I'm testing against 1.9, 2.0, 2.1, and 2.2. And also currently four versions of Rails, which is 3.2, you know, 4.0, 4.1, 4.2. And technically... I believe the gem spec says it supports anything 3.0 and higher. So we're not even testing those older ones, even though the gem spec says it, it supports it. Right, which, I mean, that's I think that's fine. 3.2 is the only one that isn't completely end of life, which it's basically end of life. Like, we've rejected, well, there's this discussion going on whether or not we will allow a pull request which adds 2.2 support to 3.2, because 3.2 does not work with Ruby 2.2. I don't know. I mean, it's a tricky one. You could you could always, like, so for the for the Ruby thing... You could always just, because the current version of clearance is fine, barring any future security vulnerability. So I see no reason why you couldn't just bump the major version, 
drop support for all the things that you don't want to support anymore, have that be the only breaking change in, in the, the major version bump, and then maintain the 1.x branch in the event that a, a security vulnerability comes out in the future and release one, you know, bump your minor version or your patch version on the 1x. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to do that anyway, right? Because I'm like, there are going to be some breaking changes, and I don't want to just tell people for something like an authentication library, I don't want to tell them that they have to upgrade to 2.0 to get the security fix or whatever. And, I, and we haven't, knock on wood, haven't had any security vulnerabilities that I'm aware of in recent memory on this library. So right. that's good, but um, you know, ultimately it's probably just a matter of time. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably a pretty good idea. But there's lots of changes I'm excited about actually making. Like we've been talking about keeping small classes and making sure you, you keep an eye on like what's this object's true responsibility. And clearance is like a big offender in it just like if you part of what you have to do to use clearance is you include clearance's user in whatever your user model is. And that adds like 21 or 22 methods, including some callbacks and some validations and a whole bunch of stuff there. And one of the biggest things I'm excited about after preaching like small classes and single responsibility is to extract objects that handle that for you. Um, so you won't go through the user class to set up encrypted password because why should the user know how to set its own encrypted password? It might know that it has an encrypted password, but it doesn't need to know how to set it, that kind of thing. So those are the changes I'm really looking forward to making exactly what we were talking about, basically. So if, I, if I'm a user of clearance and I don't do anything custom other than maybe I've overridden the views because that's something that you would expect to, people to override more often than not. But like I'm, I'm not over doing anything special in the controller or in the model. Maybe I've overridden current user to do super or guest.new, but that's not really... If, if that's the only extensions I'm making, will clearance 2.0 affect me? I think so. <laughs> Ooh. Um, I think so, because one of the things I'd also like to do is get rid of the internal routing that clearance does. And I've already made steps in that direction. Clearance 1.5 adds the ability to dump all of... So right now, clearance is a Rails engine, which includes some routes. Um, so it routes like sessions new and users and things like that. So one of the things I did in 1.5 is make it so that you can run a generator to dump the routes to your routes file and turn off clearances routing. So then you have full control over those routes. And I think I'd just like to make that what you have to do moving forward. Uh, I don't think that clearance controlling all those routes is a great decision for the design of your application. Like what if your users aren't called users? <laughs> Right. Right. So, that, okay, I can add configuration that pluralizes whatever your user model is. Okay, I, I did that. What if you don't want to allow sign-up? Well, okay, we added a configuration that says disable sign-up. Okay, so there's an if statement in there. What if, um, you know, for whatever reason, you want your URL for passwords to be password resets or something like that? You know, so there's, there's I feel like the URLs in your application are should be entirely yours, especially for things that are user-facing. You know, we're not talking about an admin interface here. We're talking about where users go. Right. So how no, I think that those? makes sense. So I think that's one of the things I'd like to do. And then, like, does clearance even have to be an engine at that point? Like, what is what what is what else is a Rails engine giving me? Controllers. I can't provide a controller class. I guess you can. I can't think of any reason why you class, wouldn't. Right? Like, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I'm not. I'm not sure if you just. This is the this is the scary thing about Rails. This is what we were getting at in our in our last episode. Is, is like. I, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that. You should be able to. <laughs> right. But the they fact are... that we can't definitively answer that scares me. Yeah. Uh, I guess it would make sense that for the router to controller, it may make sense that for the to translate from a route to a controller, 
Rails would have to be involved somehow to know like what are your controllers, not just what are your classes. Maybe, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'll find out when I yeah, try I to rip out the engine. It. Like I know another thing that it provides is like translations, but I know I can add to the IHN load path myself, not right. as an engine. So yeah, I don't know. Okay, so I'm gonna run rake clearance upgrade. It'll dump the routes. Sure. What else am I gonna have to do? Or is that going to be the only the only breaking change that affects me? Um, there will be things along the way. I think, like if you haven't, are you saying you haven't followed us along from all of these deprecations I've been talking about? Well, no, I, I am, but I'm just wondering, like, what deprecations are actually going to affect? Assuming, like, your quote unquote average user is mm-hmm. the person who overrides the views, and that's it. So I would say anywhere where you're doing like user.password equals something, and then counting on clearance to encrypt the password and store it in encrypted password. But the, I wouldn't be doing that, right? Clearance already Clearance does already that does for that me. for you. There might be places where you're doing that in like seeds or things like that. Yeah, that's true. You're going to have to go through an object to do that now. Let's see. What else? Password resets, I'd really like to move off of user. So mm-hmm. right now, the password reset token lives on the user. I'd like to either move that to its own object, its own you know active record base object, or make it database-less. Database-less? <laughs> Sort of thing, <laughs> make yes. it not rely on the database by using um, you know generated to- securely generated tokens that can be verified for timestamps, things like that. Because huh. that's one less migration that you would need to do. Right. I'm trying to think of what else. Hopefully, for most clearance users, it'll be pretty painless, if, especially if you follow along with the deprecations. Like include clearance user might not make sense anymore, right? Because I'm not including methods on a user. Maybe I'm saying include clearance password authenticatable or something. Right. And that adds whatever minimal things I need for password authentication. But if you're, you know, and the nice thing about that is then if somebody wants to come along and say, I want to use clearance with uh, OAuth, then instead of including clearance password authenticatable, you know, they can provide a gem that provides OAuth authenticatable that adds whatever needs to be added to user and then has its own password strategy or whatever. Right. Or they don't have to do anything that affects user at all because I'm assuming that the authenticate class method goes away. On user, um, into an authenticator yeah, object. Yeah, I don't kind. want that living on user. But I guess you would have to store the token for OAuth, right? And you might right. have some rules around that, like a validation around that, or something like that, right. that would get put in there. So that's one of the things I'd really like to do is make it. Right now, clearance kind of does support a lot of that. There's like, if you look into the clearance user module, there's like you can set password optional and username optional to support integrating with various things. And mm-hmm. I, instead of having those all be conflated as clearance user, I'd like to break out, like, why do these things exist? Like, right. on the tin, clearance says username and password authentication for Rails apps. So I want to make username and password authentication for Rails apps really great and not make people have to weigh it down with a bunch of stuff for OAuth. So one of the things I have to do is I've never used clearance with OAuth, so I need to find the apps that are doing that and figure out, am I going to break them? And can I give them a migration path? Either, you know, right. maybe my plan was to not ship some sort of OAuth module and just hope that another library steps up and does that. But maybe I need to ship a migration path for that. I'd have to see exactly how it feels to use clearance with OAuth to see what changes would be necessary. Hmm. It sounds like a cool way forward. Yeah, and one of the things that really, like, I've tried the when I was first charged up about, like, oh, 2.0 is going to do all these great things. One of the things I tried was almost immediately I started a 2.0 branch and just started like removing deprecated code and thinking about all these big features I could do. And then, you know, I'm only working on this for the most part for a little bit on Fridays. And right. so then like two Fridays would go by where I didn't get a chance to work on it and I'd come back and I'd have three issues 
sitting there that I needed to look at for 1x and decide, well, do I want to fix this in 1x? Do I want to just do this in 2.0? So like originally dumping the routes to the to your file was a 2.0 only feature. Mm-hmm. And people saw that I added it to 2.0 and said like, oh, we'd like this in 1x. Like this isn't a breaking change. And I was like, well, I just don't want to introduce new things to 1x. Like right. I want to just start fresh on, or not start fresh, but I want to like make this 2.0 and push this out. And months went by and I was like, you guys are right. <laughs> I'm going to do this on, I'm going to do this on, uh, on 1x. And, you know, just the other day I just deleted that 2.0 branch because I just don't, I, I think that, that was too ambitious and like like i said uh, offline was like an attempt to go from uh a to z with no like deliverables in between at all right and no opportunity for community feedback like one of the nice things about deprecations along the way like as i bump from you know 16 to 17 to 18 i can get feedback that like this deprecation is actually significantly painful <laughs> maybe we need to mm-hmm. rethink that rather than here's a bunch of breaking changes update your apps <laughs> make it work and i don't like saying that like it's obvious that that's a bad idea. It seems obvious to me that that's a bad idea. I'm a pretty smart guy. I feel like I don't know why I didn't realize that eight months ago when I was like all charged up about like, let me start this 2.0 branch. It's going to be great. <laughs> you know, and for a little while, Goose and I actually also played around with just completely rewriting it. We spent like right. a day or two like, what if we just completely reload this and we just made all the best decisions we possibly could knowing what we know right now. And we felt awesome about it. <laughs> And then I was like, this is insane. <laughs> like, it's an entirely new library that we just call clearance. So that was exciting. And, you know, I'm going to take a lot of lessons from that rewrite that we tried to do. But I think going forward, it's going to be, you know, the, the 1x with deprecations is the way to go. So Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how much of this is directly applicable. But like in Rails, there's a lot of APIs that I'd love to just deprecate because there's now better APIs there that can be used to accomplish the same thing. But what we ended up doing was just like the old APIs that were there, we just left them in and had them be like one-liners defined in terms of the new API and then just left them there because it's needlessly painful otherwise. That's my plan with the deprecations really is once I get these service objects in place. I'm going want... to punch you through the, <laughs> through, the, through the computer. Once I get these service objects in place, like my plan is for the deprecation, any method on user that is now replaced by this object is a pass through to that object with a deprecation in place. And then eventually <laughs> the, you know, that whole thing goes through, goes away. Although maybe if it ends up being super painful, I ship a module that you can include that maintains those deprecations or something. I don't know. Clearance I hope, user I hope, DSL or something. Right. And I hope I don't have to do that, but we'll see. Um, one of the other things I was excited about, and I also, I really like it when Rails does this too, is so there's, there's parts of clearance that I think are a good idea. Like there's password strategies for having like, you know, we ship with Bcrypt, but if for whatever reason you want to use Blowfish, there's a password strategy if you want to use Blowfish. So one of the things I'm excited about is I'm going to pull all of those out. Right. So we're going to ship with one way to do things. And that doesn't mean there will be no other ways to do things, but I'm going to extract gems for these other password strategies. I'm going to extract gems for uh, the RSpec matcher that we provide for controller helpers because that's a long story, but just because. (laughs) It's difficult to maintain an RSpec matcher in a gem that shouldn't have a dependency on RSpec right? and be able to be like, oh, this works with RSpec 2, this works with RSpec 3. Like, it's just been, I, it's a matcher I don't use, so therefore I don't think it should be in the gem. <laughs> but it's a matcher I don't use, so I can't, it's hard for me to make the best decisions on it, and I feel like if I pull it out, it's just as valuable to the people who want to use it, or it'll just wither if nobody wanted to use it. So That's fair. But I like when Rails does the same thing, where they just, ex- like, oh, does that happen? 
that often, I guess. I'm trying that to think. happens when we want to remove something. Right. And like that, that's our form of deprecating something that we know it's going to be too painful just to remove this feature without replacement. So we pull it out into a gem and say, we're going to stop supporting this on this version. And then if somebody really, really wants to, they go fork it and continue maintaining it after we stop. Like the deprecated finders. Or responders, things like that. Right? Well, responder is just there was already a gem that was perfect to move it into, which I really don't know why we did that. But Why you moved it? Yeah, like... It basically came out of a Basecamp thread that was just like, all the code I've seen that uses this, I've never liked it. I don't want this in Rails anymore. And they're like, okay, well, let's move it into the responders gem. I think that's, I mean, ultimately it's fine. I, I guess the downside is when things get moved to libraries, you know, Rails is looked at as like the canonical way to do things in a web framework. So when something gets moved to a library, then you have to make the decision about like, when you go on to a new project or something, are you going to introduce this library to this, pro- to this project? Like, right. is this acceptable to the developers? Is this something they will have seen before? That type of thing, which is important to consider. But. Yeah. Well, it's also a good case for keeping the Rails API small because everything we do put in there is just generally accepted to be... Yeah, I know everyone who ever looks at this code, if they're a Rails developer, they'll, they'll know what it means. Because it's a, it's a Rails API, so it's, it's, it's good. <laughs> I mean, th- that's partially true, though, right, for a lot of... No, it is. Like, seriously, I think it's a, it's a good argument for why Rails should have less stuff. Why should it have less stuff? Yeah, because that statement should... Th- that statement... The, the, the concept of a Rails developer can only include knowledge of so many APIs before it starts to become ridiculous to expect that of everybody who ever calls himself a Rails developer. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's also, I mean, as you start to include more APIs, what's the likelihood that all of them are like top-notch, top-quality, best-of-breed yeah. things? Although we say this in like, I guess with every major version or even some, I guess with 4.2 minor versions, like new libraries get pulled in and old libraries get pulled out. So it's not like it's going one way or the other. I guess it's probably growing in mass. Like, you know, Respond2 comes out, but foreign keys, which were basically foreigner, come in. Right. Active I mean, job comes in. You know, the API, does, I guess, does probably just keep getting bigger. Yeah, there's also cases, though, like serialize is now just a special case of attributes. So serialize doesn't even really exist as an API on its own anymore because you could implement it yourself in 10 lines of code. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but... (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think, what else interesting do we have to say about library maintenance? It's kind of the theme we've been going on here. (laughs) Yeah, No, I mean, I've got an interesting one that I did over the uh, holiday break. Because I'm Jewish, I don't really do Christmas. And so the, we released 4.2 the Friday before everyone went on vacation. So I sort of spent that week on issue triage and you know trying to make sure that we didn't have everyone come back from vacation to this gigantic wall of people who tried, it on, tried 4.2 that week opening issues. And then when I had some free time, got, got to some of the refactorings I've been working on. And one of the big ones I've been working on for a long time was removing typecasting from ARL. Yep. So there's this big long tree of of things, but basically this attributes API that we've introduced right now is private because it is implemented by mutating the columns hash on the active record class. The columns hash is just a mapping of the column names to types and things like that or restrictions on the columns or what what's the columns hash? It's uh it's a it's a method called columns hash and it's just a hash where the key is the name of the column and the value is a column object which has all of the information about that column in the database. Okay. And in 4.1, it, this was the object responsible for all typecasting. So it stored what was called the simplified type, which you can access by calling the type method, 
which was a symbol, and this basically was one-to-one with all of the methods that you can call on that table object in migrations, which is always just called T. So var car becomes string, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The typecast method on the column was a giant case statement in 4.1 where um, it just checked the symbol and then called a class method, which was basically one-to-one with the number of symbols that were possible. So in 4.2, there are now type objects. Those get um, passed to the column. And then most things don't go through the column anymore. There is a separate place that the types get stored, which where that's backed is an implementation detail. But the way the attributes API works is, so the, the, the syntax for it is attribute, the name of the attribute, and then you give it a type object. And what that'll do is that gets stored in a thing called user-provided types and then it overrides the method columns, and columns hash is just implemented in terms of columns. Columns is an array. And then calls super and replaces all of the columns that have names matching the attributes with a new column that has the different type. I don't like that, and I don't want columns to be involved in typecasting at all anymore. Um, I want them to just be dumb structs. Mm-hmm. And so most things do that, but the one place that columns are still used are in these two methods in the connection adapter. One's called quote, and the other one's called typecast. And they both take a column optionally as the second argument. And so typecast gets called when you have prepared statements. So whenever you see the question mark in your SQL query, that's a prepared statement. And so that goes through typecast. And that one's easy because I can just change the data structure that that gets stored, that, that we're storing internally to stop using column objects. And I've already got a branch where I'm working on that. But quote was a little bit harder because quote happened anytime a value went through ARel. And ARel would then go grab the column object off of the connection adapter not because it doesn't have access to the active record class right. which meant that it had incomplete type information because we don't modify the column objects we create that that was one thing that I, that I was saying earlier that was very important we, when in the in the attributes api we don't modify the column object we create a new column object that just has the type changed mm-hmm. so arel then has incomplete type information so it doesn't have access to this new column stuff column stuff you've created Exactly. Because it only has a connection, so it has to inspect these things and figure out on the connection what are the types. Right. And, and, and this starts to draw this line that used to be very blurry that I want to make concrete, which is stuff that exists at the database connection table information level and stuff that exists at the active record subclass level. Right. Um, and typecasting is something that lives on the active record subclass level. So unfortunately, getting ARL to stop doing typecasting requires rewriting a lot of how we construct SQL queries. But I finished that over the holidays. So I, I actually, some, some people might have seen, I tweeted like, hey, if you are a gem maintainer and you use ARL, this commit will affect you greatly. Because um, ARL is internal. Like everything about ARL is considered to be internals. So it follows Semver, but we don't commit to deprecation cycles like we do with the rest of Rails. And normally this, this is the sort of thing where I would have just made the breaking change and gone on with it. But this is one of those like, I know everybody uses this, and so, this affects... Like, in what, in what ways? Like, give me an example of, like, maybe a gem or in a way that I would use ARL that is now going to be broken. So, well, it, so I it's not now going to be broken. Or but, will, like, will be broken in 5.0? No. we're talking about? Okay. No, um, no it, shouldn't, it shouldn't affect normal application use at this point. Right, um, but, okay, so as a library maintainer, somebody... Shouldn't who... affect libraries anymore either. Okay, great. Sounds like you did a great job. <laughs> but the code that was going to be affected was anytime you saw like arel table foo dot eq bar arel table foo dot eq bar okay so doing inequality 
Check. Yes. Okay. Anything where, like, where it was a binary operator and the left side was an ARL attribute or a, the column of a SQL table, that's where ARL was doing typecasting. So this means anytime EQ in between less than, greater than, less than EQ, greater than EQ, all of those were cases where ARL performs typecasting. And I can make sure everywhere inside of Active Record that we're calling those the values already of the of the right type before we give it to ARL. Mm-hmm. But I can't expect users to do that. So this would become dangerous anytime you were passing user input. If you're passing like Rubyland input, chances are the thing that you have is already of the right type. Um, like if it's an integer column, you're probably already passing it an integer. If it was co- if it was not coming directly from params, but I can't say how common one or the other is. So instead, I decide to add a little marker object. And, and, and well, the important distinction, too, when I'm looking at, at breaking changes is if your code is affected by the breaking change and hasn't updated, will it blow up or will it just do the wrong thing? I'd rather it, I'd rather it blew up, right? Right. <laughs> and if, if it's going to blow up, I'm, I'm less concerned. Right. It's the old, like, I made a giant change in all of my test pass crap, right? Exactly. <laughs> And this one was like it'll it'll silently do the wrong thing, and doing the wrong thing might involve introducing security vulnerabilities into your application. This sounds so, like a, a great change. Yes. So rather than just making the breaking change, I um, had a way that you marked a value as like I've, I've done the typecasting. I know this is correct, and then the old way would still do the typecasting. You'd get a warning. So every time, so basically every time you're in con- Rails, I guess, is in control of the typecasting, you're passing in this thing that says, don't worry, I've already done the typecasting, not getting the warning, but exactly. anybody, anybody who's counting on ARL doing the typecasting is still going to get that and a warning for their troubles. Right. And so that was, that was the result of the initial removal. And then once I'd finally gotten everything separated, I was able to start lo- looking at it again. I'm like, okay, now how can I do this without pissing a lot of people off? Right. So I took another swing at it, which was much easier because now there was this strict separation. So you think, you think that even what we just talked about would piss a lot of people off? Yes. Just getting the warning would piss people off? Well, because they, they still have to fix the code. Right. So how do they, how would I have a, a way to remedy this warning if, if I was yeah. a, okay. So the, the deprecation warning was very descriptive and it said, you're getting this because you're doing something with ARL manually, yada, yada, yada. If you know that the value you're passing is of the correct type, you can ra- uh, wrap it in an ARL quoted node by doing ARL quoted dot new, whatever your value is, and then passing that. And if you're passing user input to this method, you are responsible for um, making sure that's of the right type yourself. If you want to silence this warning globally, you can do so via global variable. You should not do this if you're a gem maintainer. Um, was 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 the was basically what the deprecation was. It was it was a, it was a three paragraph deprecation warning. That's fine. I like I like those kind of deprecation warnings. Tell me exactly yeah. what I need to do. Tell give me a link maybe. Who knows? Um, yeah. To me, that sounds reasonable. So I'm curious as to why a why you think that's not re- why you think that would have resulted in a lot of really pissed off people and b what you did to make it less. So. Well, so. A, because the, the quoted node will not be required in ARL 8, which will be Rails 5.1. Once I remove the ARL doing the casting through the connection adapter branch, um, you can go in and delete all those. And I don't like having code that's temporary that's going to litter all, all throughout your code base. And then if you're passing user input to it, I don't necessarily expect that to always be a case where it's immediately obvious to users like what to do. Yeah, that's definitely fair like how to like yes i know this is user input how do i make sure that's safe right Right. so now you're putting that on you're putting that on the developer every gem maintainer that goes through that process 
has to make that decision correctly every time. Exactly. And, and it might be as simple as calling 2i, and it might be much more complicated than that. It was also one of those things where it's like, I know a lot of people are using this, and I'd really rather not force that many people to make needless changes to their code for no externally visible reason to them, if I can avoid it. So the final implementation now, the deprecation warning is still there. You will only get it if you are manually constructing an ARL table object. If you are calling some active record class dot ARL table, uh, you will not be affected. Because the active record class, the, the, the thing that I had to do was make sure that the type information came from the active record class. So what I did was I optionally can give that to the ARL table object, and now active record in its ARL table method gives that to the table object. Sounds really well thought out. <laughs> uh, so do you know of something that's like a gem out there that's going to have this problem now? Because it sounds reasonably well planned. There was internals in Rails that was constructing table objects manually. I assume some gem is. I should probably do a GitHub search for it and then go like open an issue like, hey, this is a really easy thing to fix. Yeah. And, and it should usually now just be as simple. The, the fix shouldn't involve like me telling you, now you have to do the typecasting. Hopefully the fix should just be as simple as saying, like, use the ARL table that came from an active record class. Yeah. That sounds like, like a super complicated issue that through a series of, like, some big and some small steps you boiled down to not be that impactful, right? Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds, it does sound really complicated. Like I know a good chunk of people probably have never called a rel table on an active record base object, right? Yeah. Um, so these are the things Sean does for you. So you don't have to think about them. <laughs> well, and hopefully people will have less reason to because it is internal. And if people are having to do that, we are missing something. Okay, when when can I call dot or then? 5.0, hopefully. Oh, that's, the, that, that's the big one, right? Um, that's really painful. Because like, doing a less than query with a SQL string is not that painful, but doing or is definitely very painful. Left right joins? Now. Are left joins painful? I can't remember. They used to be. I don't know if they still are. I haven't had to use one in a while. So you can force a left outer join by doing a little quirk where you do dot joins dot includes. Yeah, I've done that before, but I never know. Like that feels like I'm just like that could change. Who knows? Yeah, I have no clue if that's something that that you can actually rely on. But that's how I do a left outer join. <laughs> cool. Yeah, with Rails, it's it's just like all of these little changes, like the need to remove ARL typecasting. I just have to remember like three or four big goals that I have that are very, very far away. And then usually I can extrapolate from that. Well, in order to do that, this is required. In order to do that, these things are required until we get down to something that's actually actionable, even if, because there was no smaller chunk to break removing typecasting from ARL into, but that, and that one took, required like a lot of refactoring and changing things. I guess, you know, the ideal thing is like you can break things into small parts that iteratively build something up. Right. And it sounds like in this scenario, it was more like I made this big change. And then once that was made, found several ways to make it easier on people. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. When, when you refactor the code and separate things, like then you can start to look at, okay, now how can I do the same thing I was doing before that doesn't come in opposition to the goals that removing this was trying to accomplish? The big goal here is having the attributes API move to active model or maybe even to, into its own gem, which means like separating the concept of types from SQL. Oh, but then it'll be in its own gem and we discussed that means nobody's going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, no, it'll be in its own gem, it'll but it'll have the active vector. keyword. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> active attributes. Exactly. Wait, that's, already, that's already taken. Is it? Uh, well, man. there's active adder. 
maybe maybe active adder attributes is not taken who knows isn't there a rule that if rails wants a name you have to give it up no matter what <laughs> isn't that a thing um <laughs> no it's not a thing <laughs> yeah so library maintenance it's a ball of fun yeah uh you can't always do the things you want to do immediately unfortunately or ever sometimes it's like well too many people are using this this is just gonna stick around and then you introduce a bug and you get hate mail <laughs> have you gotten any hate mail i hope not oh, i get a ton of hate mail really yeah Stop. for what rail stuff Really? They're like, you broke this and now you're in trouble? Like, what, what, what kind of hate mail? No, well, usually it's not hate mail per se, but people are not... When people have to come open an issue, they are generally not friendly and they tend to, you know, throw personal insults around at times that just, like, it gets exhausting. Yeah. Like, you introduced this bug, therefore you are terrible and Rails is terrible and why does anyone use this? And then they go to Twitter and say why ROMRB is better than Rails and everybody involved in Rails is terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's almost a whole uh, separate show on, like, how to not be a jerk when reporting an issue, I guess, right? Like, yeah. nobody meant to break your code. Or if they did, they didn't think it was going to be as bad. <laughs> there's also, like, there's sometimes an entitlement to it. Like, people forget that open source maintainers do this on our free time because we like doing it. Right. Yeah, so you get a lot of, like, how could this happen? Or, like, why didn't you just? And it's like, yeah. why didn't you just? I don't know. Like, why don't you <laughs> just? Request welcome. Yeah, <laughs> patch is welcome. So, yeah, be kind to your library to your library developers. These are the things we try to think about. <laughs> and I know I've definitely, I mean, if I went through my issues on Rails, I probably have started off some with uh, inappropriate tone, but try not to. <laughs> No, I mean, most people aren't bad. There's just every now and then there'll be some person who's, like, very legitimately just trying to be a jerk. Not like, not like they, they're they opening an issue and don't know how not to be a jerk. They're, they're trying. <laughs> All right, then. They're doing don't a good be that job. person. Okay. Uh, we should probably do that thing where we uh, wrap up. If you have any feedback or would like to mail in, you can find us on Twitter at, at underscore bike shed. You can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash six. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Da-da-da-da-da.